As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to another edition of Atlantic and Coastal, the Athletics ACC podcast. I'm Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football writer for The Athletic. Joined this week by Manny Navarro, our Miami football writer. Uh, covers the Canes very well. You might know him from the Wide Right podcast. Uh, fabulously named podcast, by the way. Uh, Manny, I'm very impressed by that. But we're going to talk about the Coastal Division today. Uh, did the Atlantic Division last week. Going to run through the Coastal this week. Uh, always a crazy division. Uh, it, it, just the competition there. Just when you think you know what's going to happen in that conference, something else happens. Uh, so let's bring in Manny. Manny, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Andy. I mean, uh, I'm a fan of your show. I listen to it all the time. I heard your episode last week with Grace. Thought it was fabulous. Um, and, you know, wide right. I'm just here to terrorize Florida State fans. That's what I do. Well, we should have brought you in last week to talk a little bit about the Knowles. I don't think we gave the Knowles too much love in that. I think we see improvement from Florida State this year, but I don't know necessarily uh, if you'll see that too much in the records. Before we get to the Coastal Division, uh, we have to talk about this alliance. This mm-hmm. Pac-12, Big Ten, ACC, I don't know who gets top billing in this. It should be the Big Ten probably because they make the most money. They have formed an alliance. This was... Officially announced yesterday. Uh, I don't quite know what this alliance is for. This is like the you remember were you a Transformers fan when you were young? This is like those con- oh, yeah. those construction Transformers that combine to form <laughs> a bigger Transformer. I feel like right. that's that's what they're aiming for here. I don't know uh, exactly if they're going to get the desired effect out of this. Uh, they're going to work together on a variety of issues. Apparently, scheduling is among them. Trying to get uh, better non-conference games. Uh, there's NCAA governance that's coming up that I feel like this, even if they're not explicitly a voting block, I feel like they will have uh, like-minded ways about going about this. So, Manny, what do you think of this alliance? Is this a big deal or is this just uh, overblown fluff? Yeah, I don't know what they were really thinking yesterday with that press conference. I think it was just, you know, a matter of them standing up and saying, we're together, we're fighting the SEC, we're not going to let them take over. 
I mean, that's really what it looked like to me anyway. I was kind of hoping they'd all wear the Three Amigos, you know, uh, costumes uh, that Steve Martin and Martin Short and all them wore. I wanted them to kind of be in unison announcing this at the same time. Um, I, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand anything about yesterday. If there's nothing in writing and this is just, you know, good faith, then what is an alliance, right? I mean, there's nothing on paper here. And I don't think they have any idea really what they want to do. I think this is just sort of a we needed to react because the SEC announced that Texas and Oklahoma are coming and we needed to say something. Yeah, I think they were afraid of the SEC. And we're talking about three newish commissioners here. And I don't think any of them want to be pantsed like Bob Bowlesby was. You don't want to have your two mm-hmm. marquee programs stolen away from you in the night. I know the SEC will sit there and be like, hey, we just heard about this two weeks ago, right? When they decided to come here. It's like, right. Okay. I, I've got a bridge in London to sell you. There's no way uh, this is going <laughs> to happen. Uh, I, I think the, the most interesting thing about this is nobody has signed anything. This is all, there was a quote from Jim Phillips, and I, I think it was echoed by the other commissioners in this, and it basically amounted to, we've looked each other in the eye. This is a handshake. We trust each other. We look at this. And I said, I did a headline podcast uh, yesterday with Scott Docterman on this, and it's like, are you serious? In college football, you're going on a handshake agreement. Uh, there's no honor among thieves in, the, mm-hmm. in, in uh, college sports. And we're talking about different leagues who have raided each other throughout time. I mean, it's not like they are uh, innocents in this whole thing. I mean, the ACC killed the Big East. The Big 12, uh, you know, lost members to both the Pac-12 and the Big 10. I mean, this is, uh, this is a cutthroat stuff, and I feel like as soon as the best opportunity comes up for one of these conferences to, to make the most of their situation, this handshake agreement isn't going to mean anything. Right. Well, the same way they sort of phased out the Big 12, I could totally see whatever future partnership comes from this, uh, one of the conferences getting squeezed out. And I would think the ACC would be it, right? I mean, the Pac-12 and Big 10 have more in common, I think, um, naturally. Um, And certainly they make more money than the ACC does based on TV contracts. So I think, you know, this whole announcement yesterday was just, hey, we're going to go at this in good faith. We're going to try to work together and make college football great. But the reality is, as you said, Andy, um, the moment Clemson decides they want to out and they want to go somewhere else, everybody's going to try to get them, right? I mean, assuming that that happens, I don't know, five, six, seven years from now, whenever Clemson does the math and says getting out of the ACC is affordable for us because we're going to make X amount of money, whatever whatever the case is, them in Florida State. So to me, uh, yesterday was just – it was nice. It was great to see the three of them together working on something. Um, showing leadership, but without anything written in stone, um, it's meaningless. Yeah, I mean, the thing keeping Clemson and Florida State in the ACC is not this alliance. It's the grant of rights deal and the 15 years they have left on that. I mean, (laughs) there's nothing holding them back except for the legal repercussions of backing out of your current uh, deal that you actually signed uh, with the ACC, a a formal uh, agreement to do this. I'm curious, do you think this can help scheduling? I mean, that was a lot of the talk the other day was about scheduling and, hey, you get some interesting intra-conference matchups uh, that you might not normally see. Uh, you know, maybe Miami plays USC or something like that, or Virginia Tech plays Oregon. I mean, there, there's all sorts of possibilities you can have. Uh, I guess my, my question is, uh, they didn't really need this alliance to do that. You could have just scheduled these games anyway. And, and secondly, a, right. a lot of these schools are booked out 
four, five, six. Virginia Tech's case, nine years down the line. Um, right. If this isn't going to happen quickly, how much is it going to help? Agreed. I think uh, you're absolutely right, Andy. I mean, Miami, I think, is booked through 2027, although they have a couple of openings that they haven't announced uh, for next year. Either way, the bigger issue here is that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 both played nine conference games. The ACC plays eight. So I know our Nicole Auerbach asked during the press conference, does this mean that maybe the Big Ten and Pac-12 will reduce the number of their conference games to accommodate more of these interconference games? I think if the alliance is real, that's what they ought to do, right? These There ought to be a built-in Pac-12 Big Ten game every year for every ACC team. I mean, if this is going to be a real alliance and you're trying to match what the SEC is doing with the Super 16-team conference, um, then it's then it's about breaking some of these contracts, having to pay schools off because you broke the contract, and then scheduling, rescheduling immediately to make this meaningful. Otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah, it, it's strange, and I don't know how much you can do that. I mean, it, you've got Notre Dame in the equation with some of these schools right. like Clemson, they play South Carolina everywhere every year. Florida State plays Florida, uh, the ACC SEC stuff. A lot of these ACC schools would probably rather play SEC schools anyway. So you're like, no, yep. no, you have to go out and play Oregon State. It's like, why? We're right here. We can play a game against South Carolina or something like that. So, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot more questions than answers, I think, from this whole alliance. And I, th- I think the first, uh, I. Uh, agenda item that they should have is coming up with a better name than just the alliance uh (laughs) can we call it like surf and turf or something like that i mean we're we're talking about two oceans and a giant midwestern (laughs) portion i think surf and turf might work on something like this anyway i i don't want to spend the whole time talking about this alliance because i think it's quite frankly kind of stupid so let's move on to the coastal division you're a coastal division expert just like i am you have seen this conference year in and year out it's crazy it's uh, chaos, uh, coastal chaos is the word that people do all the time. We haven't quite had the four and four record for everybody in the league yet, but keep dreaming. Keep, we're getting close. Keep reaching for those stars, <laughs> and one day we'll have it. Uh, it's interesting, though, and we're going to start with the top. We're going to go through every team in the coastal here. It's interesting that there are some very high ceiling teams this year. I mean, you mm-hmm. look at the preseason rankings, and you got North Carolina, top 10 team. Uh, Miami is in the top 16, I think, in both polls. I think 14th and 16th going to the season. Let's start with North Carolina. The, okay. They are the preseason darlings. They are. They went 8-4 and four last year, Orange Bowl berth, lost to Texas A&M, but they were missing a bunch of NFL guys, early departures for that game. They have extremely outsized expectations this year. Uh, you know, starting in the top 10 is rare for North Carolina. They have not finished in the top 10 since Mac Brown's last year in his first run in 1997. Sam Howell back, a lot of offensive weapons. Uh, are you buying into the North Carolina hype? I am because they have an elite quarterback. I think as long as you have an elite quarterback in college football, you have a chance. And Sam Howell, to me, um, you know, he's the best quarterback in the ACC uh, right now. He's coming back. Uh, having accomplished quite a lot, obviously with a lot of talent around them last season. But I think even if there were different guys playing receiver for him and, you know, guys that weren't in the NFL right now or, you know, regular running backs, college running backs, guys that didn't get drafted, I still think that would have been a very potent offense because of Sam Howell and what he can do as far as reading defenses, putting balls where it needs to be. You know, he's going to be a first-round pick. And, you know, to me, we've seen teams ride a hot quarterback, NC State, did it with Philip Rivers, right? I mean, the one season they had Russell Wilson, they were really good. 
Um, so North Carolina has the best quarterback in the conference, and to me, that gives them a chance to be a legitimate top 10, top 20 team. Now, the one area that I think has to improve for them is on the defensive side of the ball, and I think they are going to be better on that side of the ball. Uh, they've got some good young players. Tony Grimes is a guy to me who, you know, he came into college a year early, five-star kid. Uh, he's a difference maker. When you can shut down one side of the field with that guy at cornerback, that makes your defense a whole lot better. And I think they're improving on that side of the ball. So uh, I, I think they're legitimate. Yeah, I'm a little angry at you for picking Tony Grimes in our preseason <laughs> roundtable. I, I filed mine last, of course, because I'm uh, I slow that, on yes. this. And I get in there, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick Grimes for my breakout player. And then I saw that you had already chosen him. So I went uh, a different direction. I actually think I went with Josh Downs, the receiver. Uh, on okay. North Carolina, who I think I, has a chance to step in there. You look at Sam Howell's numbers, 7,227 passing yards, 68 touchdowns. 68 touchdowns in, yep. in two years. That's incredible. I mean, we're, we're talking about him. Uh, yeah, best quarterback in the conference. Might be the best quarterback in the country, possibly a Heisman contender here. Uh, mm-hmm. He will make any offense good. I'm curious, though, how easily do they – come back from losing the sort of star power that they lost on that offense. They have Sam Howell. The, all the offensive line is back, and I think sometimes people overlook offensive line where they're making predictions mm-hmm. on this, but they are solid in the trenches there too. But Deami Brown and Daz Newsom were outstanding receivers. I mean, they tore up Virginia Tech mm-hmm. in that game. I don't need to tell you how good Michael Carter and Javante Williams are at running back oh, yeah. last year. You got a close-up look at that Miami. I think they ran for like – they're still running. It was like, I mean, <laughs> watch them playing Miami and then playing Virginia Tech. I think they averaged like 400 rushing yards in those two games. I mean, that's how good they were. Uh, I know Sam Howell is good. I know they've recruited so well. Does this feel like a team that can just seamlessly transition to the next wave of those skill guys and, and not miss a beat? I do. And I think that's just because they've recruited well for the past several years. I mean, North Carolina has continued to rank among whatever it is, top 35, top 30 schools in college football since Mac Brown arrived. And so, you know, this is year three for them. And by year three, you know, you've got that first initial class, guys ready to contribute. And if you recruit well enough, you can get true freshmen to come in and really contribute as well. And so I think from a recruiting perspective, they're they're absolutely ready to replace some of those guys. Now, are they going to play at the same elite level that Diami Brown and some of these other guys were playing at, maybe not at that level, but certainly good enough to win the division and get to Charlotte. The interesting thing in North Carolina's rise here is that all these guys that have been doing that, with the exception of Howell, who you know Mac Brown stole from Florida State at the very last second, mm-hmm. they were recruited by the previous staff. I mean, all these right. guys came in under Larry Fedora, Chaz Surratt, uh, you know, played quarterback before they moved him. And uh, I, I still don't think we make enough of how amazing that transition was about how good of a linebacker he became in that whole thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they're doing a lot of this with guys that preceded Mac Brown or came into the program, at least before Mac Brown got here. So it'll be interesting to see because he's recruited very well. Uh, doesn't have like a ton of complete recruiting classes under his belt, but obviously making great strides there. I'm curious. I fully admit that I made fun of the Mac Brown hire when it was made. I've been. I've, I don't know if I've ever been more wrong in my life about a, <laughs> about anything. Quite honestly, I'm like, oh, this retread hire. What are they doing here? They're pulling this guy out of the broadcast booth. 
uh, you know, I've been 100% wrong and embarrassed by that ever since. What were your thoughts when Mac Brown came back? Did you think he would do this? And do you think he would do that this quickly? Well, having watched Mark Richt, uh, take over Miami and in year two, get them off to that 10 and 0 start. I've come to appreciate retreads a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, the experience of just knowing what works and what doesn't. Manny Diaz, you think of Miami's first season with him in charge in 2019. He hires Danny Nose to be his offensive coordinator. And then in the middle of the season has the epiphany of, well, I think it's time for Miami to move to an up-tempo spread offense like everybody else in college football. Well, why did that happen? Well, Manny Diaz has never been a head coach before. Uh, Mac Brown, meanwhile has and so he comes in he makes all the right hires and continues to pick up on the recruiting front exactly the way north carolina had been doing which was successful manny diaz had to completely revamp miami's recruiting department so when people ask well why is miami behind north carolina even though when you look on paper mac brown i think is 15 and 10 and manny diaz is 14 and 10 um, the reason Miami's behind them is because Mac Brown has head coaching experience and he knows what it takes to win. And when you can sort of read the room and recognize right away when you walk into a program, hey, this is what we got to do. Whereas Manny Diaz, who was already on staff, but never you know, really understood what was going on the offensive side of the room, the problems he was having at the quarterback position with Jaron Williams and some of the immaturity, um, you know, it, it took him a year to get it right. And so Miami, in a sense, even though the records are almost identical with North Carolina, they're in a sense a year behind because Rhett Lashley is now entering his second season as offensive coordinator, whereas in North Carolina, this is year three in their system. So I just think that's where head coaching experience is the, is the difference. Yeah, and Mac has this presence about him. And people are like, why, why is he such a good recruiter? It's like he just owns the room. I remember I was up at the Hall of Fame induction ceremony when Frank Beamer was up there and Mac Brown was going in the same year. And Frank Beamer owns a room very well. When he walks in there, he's the mayor. He's shaking hands. He can talk to anybody in there. And Mac Brown outshined even Beamer. He was just just the center of attention in that room. So you can see why uh, somebody like that could be such a magnetic personality, especially on the recruiting trail, even though uh, you know I think he's pushing seven. I think he turned 70 uh, somewhat soon. It doesn't seem like he's slowing down anytime soon. Let's transition to Miami. You are the Miami expert here. A lot of expectations on the Hurricanes this year. They were 8-3 and three last year. Uh, as I mentioned before, 14th and 16th in the preseason polls. Uh, how much of this season rests on De'Aaron King's knee and how fully recovered he is from that ACL injury? I think without question that's the number one concern, right? Will that knee hold up? Um, you know, having spoken to De'Aaron for a while and – at, over at the ACC Media Days and, and a couple of NIL events. The one thing I can say is he's tough as hell, okay? He is completely committed to getting his knee right. Um, so from that perspective, you're not dealing with an athlete here who is going to be reckless or, you know, not responsible and not doing all the things he needs to do. That said, we all know you have no control over the health of your body, right? I mean, sometimes things just snap. And so while he's come back to practice and he's done things the smart way, he's tested that knee out, um, we won't know until September 4th and September 11th and September 18th how much he's really recovered eight months after surgery. It's going to be 
the story of the season for Miami. Now, I will say this. They have some good backup quarterbacks. So in the event that something were to happen to De'Ara King, I don't fear the situation for Miami the way I would have a year or two ago. Um, I really, from watching Tyler Van Dyke and Jake Garcia, the two backups who basically did everything in the spring while De'Eric was recovering from surgery, I, I have not felt this good about a Miami quarterback room since like Bernie Kosar, Bernie Kosar and Vinny Testaverde and all these guys were here back in the early 80s. Like that's the kind of quarterback talent I think they have in the room. They have two guys who I think could start anywhere in the ACC as far as backups in the years to come. So I, I think they're in a good situation if something were to happen to D'Eric. I don't think the season would completely implode. But I think as far as Miami's hopes to win the division – and to be a team that really contends, uh, yes, it completely relies on De'Aaron King being healthy. It would probably help if they could take a little bit of the weight off his shoulders in terms of carrying yeah. the offense. What are the skill players like around him? Is that a better group this year? Does it have more weapons? Yes. Yeah, there's no question. I think, you know, you go back to last year and, and people talk about De'Aaron King throwing the ball deep and how Miami was inconsistent. Uh, that really wasn't De'Aaron's fault. I think he put a lot of balls in good places to be caught. He just didn't have the receivers who were holding onto the ball. Mark Pope and D Wiggins each had, I think over seven drops last season they were credited with. And to me, it was more than that. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous how many times they were open deep and dropped the ball. Um, he's got Charleston Rambo, the transfer from Oklahoma, who by the way, dealt with drops himself over there. Um, but he's more sure handed. He's more experienced. I think he's, you know, the kind of deep threat you need to keep defenses honest. And then they've got this kid, Keyshawn Smith, who thankfully for Miami, when Mike Leach left Washington State, this kid became available and they were able to get him. And he is remarkable talent. Um, he is, to me, probably first-round material as long as he stays healthy and continues to develop because his physical gifts are through the roof. And he's run with the first team all camp. Looks spectacular in the spring. So I think they've got three legitimate receivers, including Mike Harley in the slot. And then, of course, Will Mallory, who's a very, very good you know, tight end, was a good backup last season uh, to Brevin Jordan. So I think from a receiver perspective, this offense is a lot better than it was a year ago. Um, the question will be, can they find that balance? Can they run the football? And, you know, Miami's got the second most experienced, I think, offensive line in the country behind Minnesota, if I saw that right in terms of starts. So I think, you know, with a more experienced offensive line and a healthy Cam Harris and Don Chaney Jr., they should be able to run the ball better. But I don't know. To me, the, the big question is the other side of the football. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. I mean, this was a team that was 8-3 and three last year. That, that's a very good record. They were right up there in the ACC standings. And yet I feel like the lasting image of the Hurricanes from 2020 was UNC – just tread marks all over the back, running through them yep. and around them. Uh, I know that shaped a lot of what Manny Diaz wanted to do with this team in the offense. You lose players like Jalen Phillips, Quincy Roche. Uh, those are tough guys to lose. Is there uh, a turnaround or any big change you can see with this defense where uh, you know that's not going to happen again this year? Yeah, I didn't see it in camp, to be honest with you. And I know the coaches are obviously, you know, <laughs> they're they're going to tell their own side of the story and say that they're encouraged that X, Y, and Z are, are getting better. But 
Um, you know, look, we, did, we didn't get a chance to watch a whole lot of practices. We got to watch the first two when guys weren't in pads and then, you know, 40-minute segments, 30-minute segments here and there. And they didn't do a whole lot of 11 on 11. So from a from a I saw it perspective, I can't answer that honestly. But reading the room, reading, you know, where guys are lining up, um, they still have uh, Wayman Steed and Bradley Jennings lining up at linebacker with the first team at times. And that's, you know, knowing this team and knowing the situation they had stopping the run. That's not an encouraging sign. They needed some of this fresh blood to grow up and to get healthy and to play well. And they've got two guys, two young guys now, and Corey Flagg and Keontra Smith, a guy who moved over from the striker position to weak side linebacker. Those guys have moved in, but they've got other young guys on this roster that you were hoping would get healthy and also play better, and they're not really doing that. Um, Sam Brooks Jr. has been dealing with a turf toe injury, um, and uh, Avery Huff, a four-star recruit, this is year three for him. We haven't heard anything about him. We haven't seen him run with the first or second team in any of the practices. So to me, you know, this whole you need guys to grow up and play better thing, that hasn't happened. And then defensive end, you know, that's another area where you lose Jalen Phillips and Quincy Roche, two of the best pass rushers, uh, in the ACC last year, sir, and I think you know Jalen was a second-team All-American before the Dolphins drafted him in the first round. Um, you know, you haven't seen or heard a whole lot of sacks happening in in practice, and and maybe that's because the offensive line is better. I don't know, but to me, the front seven is the issue. And from what I've heard and seen, I just don't I just don't think they're going to make that jump. And certainly. Facing Alabama week one does them no favor. I was going to say, it's a good thing they don't have a tough game in the first week. They can kind of wade into the season. Uh, that is a tough way to open uh, against Alabama. Yeah. I think we'll find out. Uh, I mean, I guess I say that we'll find out a lot about Miami. Maybe not. When you play a team that good, maybe it just kind of obscures any kind of growth that you could have uh, in certain regards. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Moving to the next team here. Here's one I know well. Virginia Tech was picked third. Mm -hmm. Um, This feels like a team that has just a wide variety of possible outcomes this year. I, I look at the roster and I look at where they are and I go, yeah, I could see this coming together and this being a sleeper team, perhaps competing for the Coastal Division title and getting up there. And then I, I look at some other positions and I go, man, an injury or something work, doesn't work out in a certain spot, I could definitely see the wheels just completely falling off and this being it for Justin Fuente. I mean, specifically quarterback, uh, you know, behind Braxton Burmeister, they are really thin. They don't have anybody with experience. I think they like Burmeister. I just don't think that uh, a lot of people have seen that. But behind him, there's just really no experience uh, whatsoever. And then you look at the defensive line. They have a lot of guys there that, uh, you know, it's a small group. And a, a group where the veteran guys, I think, can do some things, particularly Jordan Williams, a Clemson transfer. Amari Barno, on uh, defensive end, was really a breakout player last year, led the ACC in tackles for loss. But how often do you get through a season with no injuries on your defensive right. line, your defensive tackles? And they, you, they just don't have the depth there. So uh, it's an interesting team where, yeah, maybe you can sort of see it coming together, but 
it almost requires perfect health, and that just never happens in a football season. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm too close to the forest to see the trees or two trees to the sea, I forget whatever that phrase is. I'm curious <laughs> what a, an outsider's opinion from Miami would be on Virginia Tech. Yeah, I just see them as a team in transition, right? I mean, you, you're making so many changes. Uh, Miami's got the consistency on offense with the offensive line coming back, uh, the quarterback coming back. I mean, I know Burmeister played last year, but, I mean, you just look at the situation. Uh, they had a really good offensive line last year, and how many of those guys are gone, right? Four out of the five, I think. Um, well, not quite. Not quite. Christian Derrissaw is gone. Christian Derrissaw is okay. gone. He was a first-round pick. They've got Luke Tenuta, Brock Hoffman, Lasita Smith all back. Uh, they had okay. some transfers that were expected that's to step into spots. But yes. I, I actually think their uh-huh. offensive line could be okay. I think that's that's perhaps the least of their concerns going to this season. Okay. Well, then, then that makes me feel better about them <laughs> because I thought that was their strength last year. I mean, running the football, honestly – had Virginia Tech not run into the amount of issues they did with COVID and injuries and whatnot last year, I mean, I thought that w- could have been the best offense in college football. I mean, not college football, but the ACC, rather. And, you know, it just felt like they kept running into issues all season long. And I don't know. I, I, I love a running game. I think a running game, when you when you have an elite running game, you can beat a lot of teams. And... You know, if they're as good as they were up front as they were last year, um, then I think they'll be fine. I think they can be right in the mix with everybody else. The issue was defense for them last year, right? I mean, that's what I saw. Um, they were giving up a lot of points, but they also were dealing with COVID issues. So I don't know. I, 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 I tend to agree with you, Andy, because I, I think, you know, this is a very, I don't know, tough year for their head coach. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> He's got to produce. And, and you can get tight in those situations, too, you know. Who knows what kind of maybe weird decisions he makes because he feels that pressure. I don't know. You you know him better than I do. You know Fuente better than I do. Do you think the pressure of the job is getting to him at all? I mean, who knows? He might call a timeout on a 60-yard field goal to let a team get closer <laughs> for a closer field. Oh, wait, that happened last year against right. Liberty. Uh, a couple things just to respond to what you said. I, Khalil Herbert last year was a stud. At running back, right. absolute stud. Uh, I think exceeded everybody's expectations here. Was their best running back they've had here since David Wilson, and that was ten years ago. Uh, so replacing him will be a tall task. I don't know if they necessarily do it with one person. I do feel somewhat comfortable about their ground game just because of the offensive line, like we mentioned before. The defense that is the biggest question mark. I mean, this was a team that was 103rd nationally in total defense last year, 95th in yards per play, 6.19. This is Justin Hamilton's first year as last year was as a defensive coordinator, replacing Bud Foster. No small task in doing that. Oh, by the way, you don't have an off season. And also you missed the first couple games yourself with the COVID-19 protocols. So, Uh, it was just like the perfect storm of bad luck, I think, for that defense in a lot of spots. And some of that is self-inflicted, too. I mean, they weren't very good at tackling and anything like that. They have to shore up on those fundamentals. I, I think their issue on defense is like, yeah, I think they will improve. But no, I don't think they're going to be a top 30 defense, top 20 defense, like it was always guaranteed to be under Bud Foster and can the offense continue to be good enough for any kind of defensive improvement to show up in that uh Fuente's situation is interesting because I think if you ask anybody who's on the hottest seat in the ACC it would be him 
I'm the athletic director. You don't have the athletic director come out and say he's not going to fire you and give reasons why and not be on the hot seat the next year. And then you look at the schedule they have this year. UNC in the opener, West Virginia in week three, Notre Dame in week five. Uh, we're going to know a lot about this team before you even hit the halfway point of the season. You kind of wonder if things get off to a rocky start. Do people, I don't want to say mail it in, but you know, it can kind of spiral on you if it gets out of control there. So I think the key for the Hokies and Fuente is getting off to a fast start. I Actually, I think I give them a decent chance in that opener against UNC. They play very well in openers under Justin Fuente. They get him at home. Uh, I think they were embarrassed last year at UNC, just how they played. I think that defense really wants to prove a point. Uh, I, I think it's maybe closer than people think, and I think the line is only like five or something like that. So maybe even I, Vegas agrees with that as well. I, I completely agree. I think they could pull the upset week one. I mean, you never know what you're going to get week one anyway, right? I mean, tackling is always the biggest issue. Who knows if North Carolina comes out rusty offensively with the new guys. Um, I think they're in a perfect situation to steal the game from North Carolina week one. All right, Pitt, fourth place team. Uh, Pitt has us right where it wants us. Yes. You don't want, <laughs> if you're Pitt, you don't want any expectations coming to the season. You want to fly under the radar. Whenever they have expectations, they fall flat. And whenever they don't, it seems like they come up and surprise some people. They were six and five last year. I saw this stat out there. I was kind of amazed by it. That's 11 straight seasons with five plus losses including mm-hmm. all eight in the ACC. One of those included the Coastal Division title, and they still lost five games that year. Uh, this is a program that just quite hasn't been able to get over that hump. I mean, it's, it hasn't been a bad program. It's been a consistent bowl team, uh, but just never quite over that 7-5, and 8-5, uh, and five, you know, always kind of in that, that range every season. Uh, Kenny Pickett is back for his 12th season, I think, roughly. Uh, he's the kind of quarterback that is just good enough not to get you fired, it feels like. <laughs> Look at his numbers. Never more than 13 touchdowns in every year, which is amazing to me because it feels like he threw for that many against Virginia Tech last year when I saw them play. Always a good defensive team. You just kind of trust that with Pat Narduzzi. I'm curious your sort of 10,000-foot view on what you think of Pitt. Yeah, they played Miami tough last year in South Florida. Um, I mean, they play Miami tough every year, but considering they had their backup quarterback in the game and you were in the third quarter, fourth quarter for Miami, sweating out the fourth quarter, um, you know, it, it kind of says to you what Pat Narduzzi does as a head coach, right? He gets his team ready to play in every single game. You rarely see them get blown out. I think most of their losses are relatively good fights. Um, I think the issue for Pitt is they just don't have enough explosiveness in their offense. Um, they don't have much of a running game. I think they finished third to last in the ACC in rushing. And they don't really have a star back there, which I think, you know, you kind of need that to keep defenses on their toes. And so their quarterback is sort of limited, um, you know, in, in terms of the defense knowing, hey, these guys can't run the football. We'll just sit back in coverage and stop them. And, uh, and so I think that's their primary issue. I don't know that it's going to get any better this year. I don't know that they have necessarily upgraded the offensive line or, um, you know, brought in some sort of new running back to, to freshen things up. I think it's pretty much the same group. Um, you know, I think they added one transfer through the, through the portal on the offensive line, but I mean, that's the issue. I think as long as they kind of remain a one dimensional one-dimensional team on offense they're going to need that defense to play an elite level to keep them in games and so and that's just not the way college football is trending you know uh, you you got to score more than 30 points a game to win um and, and i'm not sure that 
Pitt's going to do that. So I think fourth in this division is probably accurate. But, hell, they could win the division and we'll all look stupid you know, a few months from now. Yeah, it, it, the thing with Pitt to me that is so strange is I think of Pitt, I think of this you know, tough defensive team, of course, and then great offensive line and run the ball behind it. I mean, that's what they were for a while there. Right. Uh, Paul Christ had that sort of mentality. Uh, I feel like Narduzzi had that early on. And then last year, like you mentioned, just, they just could not run the ball at all i mean they were they were just terrible at that and unless pickett turns into dan marino like he did against virginia tech when he threw for 404 mm-hmm. yards that that's a problem you can't really have an offense like that so i, I feel like they, they lost some guys on defense but i would trust narduzzi to get this defense right and put just sort of the the typical no name hard nosed defense out there they're going to be tough to deal with but until they can figure out the offense i'm with you uh, I, I don't necessarily know if they get over that hump. That being said, now that we've buried them on the podcast, they're going to win the Coastal because that's how it works. <laughs> Fifth place team, Virginia. Yes. I have some familiarity with Virginia. They went 5-5 five and five last year. If I'm being honest, I nearly picked them as my sleeper team in the uh, the ACC roundtable we did. On, on, I should have done it just so people I, – I ended up going with Virginia Tech. People are like, oh, you homer. You unbelievable homer. I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe I, I should have picked Virginia. I think the Cavaliers are an interesting team because they have a quarterback that they really like in Brennan Armstrong, who is a problem for teams. He is uh, more mobile than people give him credit for. He's just a gamer. They have their entire offensive line back. I think they have one of the better offensive lines in the ACC. Uh, they have some interesting weapons on offense. Billy Kemp or Sean Henry. They think Dontavian Wicks can step up into a bigger role this year. Jelani Woods is the six foot seven tight end they got from Oklahoma State. Keaton Thompson is sort of a slash type role. Uh, I would feel a whole lot better about Virginia as my sleeper team if Lavelle Davis, the six foot yeah. seven receiver, was healthy and could play. <laughs> exactly. That dude was a problem for defenses. They could, I mean, you just throw it up to him and he, he'd catch it. I think they're hoping that Wicks can do some of the stuff there. Uh, but, man, not having Davis, I think that hurts them quite a bit. And the other part is their defense, and they were just uh, horrendous last year at stopping the pass, and they had all sorts of issues in the back end and uh, injuries and things like that. I'm curious if you think – I mean, you, you've seen Virginia play Miami, and they've had some, like, close, really mm-hmm. ugly, toughened-it-up games. I'm curious what you think about the Cavaliers. Yeah, I see them very similarly to Pittsburgh. I think the running game is the issue. You know, do they have a running back who can – turn this offense into potentially something that defenses have to respect. And I don't think they really have that guy still. Um, You know, obviously they've got a dual threat uh, with their quarterback Armstrong. But I I think, you know, those are the issues for Pittsburgh and Virginia. If you can't run the football and keep defenses honest, then it doesn't matter how much talent you've got at receiver. And, And in their case, I still look at Miami and North Carolina and say, yeah, those are the teams with more talent at those positions. And so as far as the division is concerned, I think that's their issue. Now, I will say this. I, I did a whole lot of sort of, you know, questions at the ACC media days about different topics. You know, who's the toughest offensive line? Who's the toughest defensive line? That kind of, you know, categorical, categorical type stuff. And all I kept hearing from people was this, you know, Virginia front on both sides of the ball, just how physical they play. And that's the one thing Mendenhall has managed to consistently do well. And I feel like when you're strong up front on both sides of the football, um, you know, you're going to be in the game, which is why you see Virginia in the game a lot of times. Um, but, 
you know, I, I think their issues in the running game are the problem. And then the secondary, you know, they've, they've lost some quality guys in the last two years there. I know they've had some injuries. Um, you know, you can't if you can't defend uh, the pass in today's game with, you know, Derek King and uh, all these great quarterbacks in the ACC, then, then you're probably not going to win. So I, I see them as the same as Pittsburgh. I think they could flip-flop in the standings be fourth or fifth. Yeah, you mentioned that running game. They had to get, like, really inventive last year with how they ran the ball, almost like wildcat stuff. And especially when Armstrong was out, they were almost running like a like a wing tee, like a high school type offense just to get any kind of uh, quarterback in the game there. Uh, I do like sort of uh, how creative they've been in some things on offense. I think that's problematic for some teams out there. Defensively, you know, you lose Zane Zandier, you lose Charles Snowden. Those are big parts of that linebacking core. I really like Nick Jackson. He's a, a good player. I wonder if the defense is quite there yet uh, to get them up in that upper tier of the Coastal. Sixth place team. We got two left here. Georgia Tech. Is this the year? You know, we've been hearing this about Jeff Collins since he got there, and you had to cut him a ton of slack when he got there because if you're transitioning out of an option offense, you really have to remake a lot of the roster to get there. He's gone three and nine, then three and seven in his two years. Uh, last year, it just it didn't feel like there was the progress that you wanted to see after you give sort of the year zero type thing uh, when he started there. They gave up seventy three points to Clemson. You know, a lot of people struggle against Clemson, of course. They also lost to Syracuse. Uh, you know, they hammered Louisville, and everybody's like, there it is, there's the turning point, and then they were pretty bad uh, for most of the rest of the year. Uh, this is a team that has some guys, though. Jeff Sims, at quarterback, uh, looked like a freshman a lot of times last year, 13 touchdowns, 13 picks. Uh, Jameer Gibbs at running back, I think he's a guy there, but are, are we going to start to see some progress in the win column this year from Georgia Tech at all? Yeah, I think it's all about defense for him, and can that defense grow up and play well? Because obviously, uh, with Jameer Gibbs in the backfield and their quarterback, who I like a lot, uh, Jeff Sims, I, I I think they've got two guys on offense that can score points for them. Their issue is defense, and you know, in the ACC, if you can't get to the quarterback, which I think was a big issue for them last year, what did they finish? Twelfth uh, in the ACC against the run, and fifteenth in sacks. Uh, that's a problem. <laughs> You're going to be at the bottom of the standings if that's the case. Uh, you got to be able to put pressure on the quarterback. And uh, I think until that gets fixed, uh, they're going to be at the bottom of the standings. That said, uh, this is year three. Uh, he has had a chance to recruit players. Uh, you hope for their sake that uh, those kids are ready to really deliver. And Again, I almost feel like there's two halves to the coastal standings. Um, you know, I really feel like Miami, North Carolina, Virginia Tech probably have the best shot of, of winning it, um, even though, you know, this is coastal chaos. But I feel after that, there's a pretty big divide in terms of just talent at the quarterback position, talent at, you know, the skill positions. Uh, and Georgia Tech's problems defense. So I, I think until we see them improve on that side of the ball, get pressure on the quarterback, they're going to be at the bottom of the standings. Yeah, you might even say the Hokies are sort of straddling the fence between the top and right. the bottom uh, if there's a team that's like that. Yeah, this, the defensive problems at Georgia Tech is curious because it's not like they had to overhaul the defensive system when he got there. Mm -hmm. You can understand going from an – I mean, when he got there, they didn't have any tight ends. They had like 20 running backs and no tight ends. Right. Like you have to remake the roster if you're doing that, but – defensively you didn't have to go under that kind of transition i'm looking at the schedule this year with georgia tech they play clemson north carolina miami notre dame and georgia yeah i, no I don't see them winning any any of those five games right there 
I mean, can, if this team gets to a bowl game, I think that would be an impressive feat. I mean, what, what would you consider success for Jeff Collins in year three? Well, getting to 500 would be success, right? Winning one of those last five games, uh, taking care of business against the teams that you'd hope Georgia Tech would be able to take care of business against. But they've got a really tough schedule. So uh, sometimes you got to measure success these days. And can you keep your recruiting class together? Can you keep your guys from transferring so that, you know, the program continues to grow towards where it needs to grow? And uh, I think he's in one of those situations. I don't know that they're ready uh, to pull off any upsets because, to me, the defensive side of the ball, that's going to be the issue for them. There's just a lot of explosive uh, offenses they're going to face. Clemson, North Carolina, Miami, um, you know, Notre Dame, Georgia, all those teams are going to put up points against them. And uh, so being 500, I guess, would be progress for them. Well, one of the teams they better beat is the last place team in the, in the preseason <laughs> yes. predictions, Duke. 2-9 uh, and yes. nine last year, 1-9 <laughs> and nine in the ACC. The bottom really fell out on this team and uh david cutcliffe is a miracle worker for what he did at duke and getting that program to the acc championship game from where it was when he took over uh it does feel like it's on the downside of that hill though uh it is just it has not been there the last couple years last winning record was in 2018 eight and five last time they were better than sixth in the coastal division was 2017 uh, so it's been a while. That's, that, I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. a couple of years now. Uh, I was struggling. I'm like, what am I going to talk about with Duke? And I'm, I was like, go to the state of the program that was written in the spring. And who was it written by? Manny Navarro. <laughs> so you're, you are the Duke expert <laughs> yes. on the podcast here. Tell, tell me about Duke. And <laughs> is there any hope with this team of turning things around? Well, I think it all starts with turnovers. I mean, it's hard to even give yourself a chance to win when you're minus 19 in the turnover margin, which, by the way, since 2009, that's the second worst margin in college football behind a 2017 San Jose State team that was minus 26. So I think that's where it starts. Um, Cutcliffe you know, decided to basically hand the reins over of his offense to to two of his protégés, two guys that have been in the system for a long, a long time. Uh, Jeff Ferris, I got a chance to talk to him, and you know he talks about how the most important thing for them is getting better offensive line play. That was a sort of a very underrated uh, category for Duke when they were having success in winning games and and won the division. They had some really good offensive linemen, um, and you know they've kind of fallen apart there a little bit uh, with recruiting. They're on their third offensive line coach since 2015, um, and so. They're hoping that they can solidify that area, but they're a team in transition, you know, and you mentioned Cutcliffe, uh, you know, maybe this is the end of the road for him soon. Um, I agree. I think I think we're very much looking towards that here. Um, look, they've got a good running back, Mateo Durant. If the offensive line can provide any sort of holes for him, um, I think he's going to be a good player. I think he's going to help pace that offense, um, but you look at how Duke won in the past, you know, receivers making plays for him. I don't see that guy really in that offense. Uh, I see more possession type guys. Um, so I think offensively, it's just about getting that offensive line better, coaching those guys up um, and, and, and getting better production there. And, and then defensively, um, you know, they lost two tremendous pass rushers, two guys that have played a ton for them. Um, and, and now they've kind of got a new wave coming in up there. And defensively, they weren't good last year as it was. So I, I don't know. I don't know that they fixed this anytime soon. I kind of look at Duke as a team that let's see who they hire as the next head coach. And can he start to recruit better than Duke ever has? Can they start to bring in the kind of difference makers you need in college football 
to really contend because let's face it, I think the year Duke won the division, it's just because the entire division was kind of crappy. So it was co- sort of the perfect opportunity for them to sneak in there uh, and win the division. And so, um, you know, right now I think Miami and North Carolina – uh, are are doing a much better job recruiting over the last couple of years. You see the talent is getting better. You know, Duke's got to Duke's got to do a better job recruiting in my eyes bef- before they ever sort of contend for the division again. Yeah, I don't want to bury uh, David Cutcliffe yet because, uh, like I said, I'm just impressed by the job he did there. And I know he's uh, turning 67 in September, but mm-hmm. I, I think he uh, posted shirtless next to some other players that were yes. like flexing. <laughs> And it's like, oh, that's why they call him Coach Cut. Like, holy there crap, if I look like that when I'm 66, <laughs> like, wow, that's incredible uh, how yep. much uh, great shape he is. I mean, th- that's a guy who I, I think he's one of the, the few guys in the country where you can kind of – he can write his own exit from a school. That's how oh, important yeah. he's been to Duke. So I, I, I don't necessarily think he's done there yet, but I, I, I'd like to see some progress out of the Blue Devils. And I just – I don't know. I look at the roster. I look at the quarterback, Gunnar Holmberg. And is that going to move the needle too much? Right. I, I, I think their issue is, um, you know, it's hard to sort of bring fresh blood in when you've got the same head coach. And I think in in some ways they do need the fresh blood, just just from a recruiting perspective uh, to, to, to sort of liven things up. That said, I think he's earned his, his opportunity to sort of, hey, I'm, I'm going to go when I want to go type of deal. And I don't think they're going to push him out the door there. We know that they prioritize things like academics, and uh, you know that's important to them. And he's obviously had a lot of success with that. We haven't heard any issues with Duke having academic issues in the time he's been there. So uh, I think you're right. I think he leaves when he wants. But in terms of seeing Duke turn around, uh, I just think it's gonna it's gonna require fresh blood. Well, Manny, we've run out of teams to talk about, so that means we're done. <laughs> we, I think we've done all the talking we can in this offseason. I'm ready for the games to start. You're ready Me for too. the games to start. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We'll have actual games to cover next week. I'm looking forward to it. I'll be. Uh, hopefully, I can get to Atlanta. We'll see. I'm in this COVID protocol right now. Hopefully, I'll get out of jail soon. Well, we all want you to be there, and we're looking forward to that. Everybody go out and follow Manny on Twitter. That's at Manny underscore Navarro. Uh, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, thanks for everybody for coming on, uh, listening to the podcast again. Please go out and rate, review us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast that helps us get the word out to everybody. Subscribe to The Athletic. You can listen to this podcast ad-free on there. Go to theathletic.com slash pod to get the best deal that we have going right now. When we come back and do this next week, we're going to be previewing actual games. No more uh, preseason nonsense and talk and this guy's great, this guy's great. No, we're going to actually talk about games. It'll be exciting. We'll go cover them, and we'll talk about the actual games. So looking forward to talking to you next week. (laughs) 